I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Uh, The late Professor Chris O'Brien, who was a cancer specialist at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, said, everyone needs hope. We live on hope. And if you've ever been to the Chris O'Brien Lifehouse at RPA, you'll know that from the receptionist to the barista to the grand piano in the entrance hall, the whole building radiates hope. Christian faith is full of hope because hope is based on promise. God makes promises and therefore we hope and have a real expectation that they will be fulfilled. I used to promise our children we'll go to the zoo, we'll go to the movies, we'll go to the show. They could be fairly sure on the basis of my promise that that promise will be fulfilled. Promise and hope are inseparable. They're like Siamese twins. And the faithful God of promise is the promise giver and therefore we believe those promises and hope for their fulfilment. A friend of mine goes to a church called Hope Church and instead of home groups, they have hope groups. Uh, Hope is vitally important. Faith, hope, love. Faith will be sight. Hope will be fulfilled and realised, but love remains. And we are anticipatory people. I remember going to a physician and he said to me, Mr Cook, are you an anticipatory person? I said, I can hardly wait for your next question. Of course we are. Our children look forward to Christmas and then we look forward to the Easter show and then we look forward to birthdays and then we look forward to Christmas. And for many years I was involved in a tertiary college where people look forward to mission and then they look forward to preaching week and then they look forward to graduation. We're looking for the next Um, one of the things I used to love doing was going on safaris in South Africa. If you said to me, what is your favourite animal? My favourite animal was the giraffe. But the giraffe was also the favourite animal of the lion. And very often you'd go through the park and you'd see a giraffe skeleton picked clean by lions and others. Now, the giraffe had three advantages over the lion. One, it had camouflage skin. Two, it had strong hind legs, which could kill a lion if it came behind. But three, of course, it had the giraffe's eye view. It could see a lion coming at a distance. And what I love about Romans 8 is that it gives you the giraffe's eye view. It's a classic chapter. Paul introduces us to the whole vista beginning. Look there at verse 1 on page 1754. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what the law could not do, look at verse 3, the law was powerless to do. God did by sending his own son. And then Paul goes on in verse 14 and says that we, those who are followers of Christ, who are in Christ, verse 14, he says, those who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. And he is the spirit of adoption, verse 15. And by him, we're enabled to cry out to God, Abba, Father, in the most intimate terms. Incredible, isn't it? And then that leads Paul to the thought that if we are God's children and cry out to him, Abba, Father, look at verse 16. Well, then we're going to inherit. We are heirs and we are co-heirs with the Lord Jesus. Verse 17, we will share in his glory, the inheritance, if indeed we share in his sufferings. 
Well, today we come to verse 18 to 27, and it's always in the context of our great hope, which is based on the promises of God. But Paul anticipates the question, well, that's all very well. I know I've got great hope of glory in eternity, but what about my sufferings now? What about the real pain now? What about the season of suffering I'm living in now? What about the aching loneliness? What about the grief now? How does hope help me? Uh, The earliest letter in the New Testament is the letter of James. And you remember how James starts. It's as though a new believer comes to him in the first century and James says, now here is your first lesson. I want you to count it all joy when you suffer trials of many kinds. Isn't it incredible? In the first century, someone comes to Christ and they had to get their thinking about suffering right because the immediate reality which they were going to face in Christ was a reality of suffering. And that's the way it is for you and that's the way it is for me. We will find a double dose of suffering because we're believers We suffer because we live in a fallen world where there is friction, where there is loss, where there is pain, and where there is ultimately death. And that is because of Adam and Eve's sin. And we are not exempt from that. But we also add to that dimension the suffering which we will face, the hate, the discrimination, the ostracism of the world because we belong to the Lord Jesus. Jesus says, they hated me, They'll hate you too, don't be surprised. And the last word he says to his disciples in John's gospel is, in the world, you will have trouble. So when it comes, don't be surprised because I told you that you will have trouble. So we are people of a double dose of suffering and yet we are people of great promise and we are looking forward to the glory that will be revealed. So how do you put those two things together? Now, that's the question that Paul's going to answer this week and next week. He's going to say two things this week and next week. Make sure you come back because he's going to say the third thing next week. And I know that you're facing suffering. If you're not going through it now, you will. We were told at Bible college, if you don't suffer in the first 30 years of your life or get ready in the second 30. And suffering is real and you are probably now facing suffering and probably maybe even in hidden ways. For others, it won't be in hidden ways. So how is it that people of future hope cope with the present reality of disappointment, mental anguish, loneliness, pain and grief? Well, look at what God says. Look at verse 18. Here's the first thing. Remind yourself, Paul says, verse 18 to 22, that suffering is incomparable to the glory that is to come. But I love those two words, verse 18. I consider. The word Paul uses in Greek is the word from which we get logicon. Logical. I make this reasonable, logical calculation when it comes to suffering. Now, it's the same word Paul uses in Philippians where he says, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just and lovely, logically embed this in your mind. So the very first thing Paul does is when we come to suffering, he says, engage the reason, engage the mind. 
Now, the very question that I ask, I don't know about you, you probably ask it too, when I see someone who's suffering, I say, how are you feeling? And yet Paul goes straight to the mind. He says, how are you thinking? Now, I don't, I don't like suffering, but how am I thinking? Paul takes us away from the feeling question to the thinking question. And that is precisely what James does. Consider, logically, make have this attitude to count it all joy. In other words, get control of your brain. Lead your thinking. Whatever I'm going through does not compare with the glory that is to come. And that glory, I will not be a spectator. I won't be watching that glory. I will be participating in that glory. And Paul says in verse 18, literally, this glory will be revealed in us or to us. So it's no glib, doesn't minimise pain. He takes us into another room. He takes us out of the room of feeling and he takes us into the room of the mind. Calculation. I consider when I'm going through pain. I consider when I am being excluded or insulted because of the Son of Man. Jesus said, blessed are you when you suffer. Blessed are you. How can you have that attitude? Because I consider. I consider that this is incomparable to the glory that is to come. And look back to verse 17. It says that that suffering is the prerequisite to glory. Yes, glory is coming. Suffering is now. In other words, get your thinking right about suffering. Paul goes on, verse 19. He says the creation is anticipatory as well. It waits Verse 20, it was subject to the frustration because of sin. It anticipates, verse 21, its liberation from its bondage to decay. In other words, creation is going through the same agony as you and me, going through the same agony of the church, agony to ecstasy. The creation is sick and tired of the cycle of being sown and growing up and getting old and then depreciating and dying. And creation, Paul says, is almost crying out. It's looking forward to its liberation in the new creation where that dying and passing away will be behind, when the children of God will be glorified. In fact, he says, verse 22, I love the reality of the Bible. Creation is groaning as a woman in the pain of childbirth, a deep inner sigh. And so our hope being fulfilled involves the old creation groaning for the future, a mammoth change. We will be revealed as the children of God and creation itself will be new. And Paul says, it's incomparable what you're going through now. And my last word to my father before he died was, Dad, what no ear has heard, what no eye has seen, what no mind has conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. It's beyond your imagination. Paul says it's incomparable. And I remember going to visit my dear brother-in-law for the last time. He's lying on his couch. I said, Peter, uh, this world is as close to hell as a believer will ever get. And it's as close to heaven as an unbeliever will ever get. And I'll never forget, he sat up straight. He said, tell me that again. This world is as close to hell as a believer will ever get, but it is as close to heaven as an unbeliever will ever get. 
Paul says, yes, suffering's real. It's now, but it's incomparable. So I come away from this thing, and the scripture is saying, get your thinking straight. Get your thinking straight about suffering. And that's good for me, because I can tend to wallow in self-pity. I don't know about you. Get your thinking straight. But then secondly, Paul goes on in verse 23 to 27, and he's more empathetic at this point. If you're looking for more of a pastoral approach, well, Paul's a great pastor, and he's going to give you more of a pastoral approach, if you like, a subjective reason. Uh, One time we were in London, and I was reading the Daily Telegraph in London, which is not like our Daily Telegraph, it's a sort of substantial paper, and it was announcing the death of Dame Cicely Saunders. And it had an obituary for Dame Cicely Saunders. And Dame Cicely Saunders was the founder of the hospice movement. And she used to say that the dying have three needs. Stay with me. Hold me. Talk to me. And she, uh, when she started her first hospice, she abandoned all visiting hours. She said, because visiting hours implies there's non-visiting hours. And, and that people must have access to their loved ones 24-7. Stay with me. Talk to me, hold me. Now look at what Paul, the apostle, says here. He says, not only is our present suffering incomparable, but look at that verse 23, not only so, but we ourselves, he emphasizes that, that's you who are in Christ. We have the first fruits of the spirit. We have the taste of heaven now. We have the down payment on heaven now. We have the deposit of the future now. But we also groan as we await our adoption, the fulfilment of our hope, the new creation. But Paul says, you're not alone. You're not alone. Verse 25, we wait patiently, (laughs) but not in isolation. I'm never alone. You cannot see him, the spirit, but he will make you aware that he is there. Look back at verse 16. Isn't it a great verse? The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You can prove it. If you're in Christ, I've been in extreme circumstances in my life and I've called out to God and I know that God came and testified I'm with you. We'll walk through this together. It's part of the ministry of the Spirit to make his presence felt. And Paul says, you've got the gift. You've got the Spirit of God living in you. He's the first down payment. He's the deposit. And he will give you that inner sense. And if I'm in in an empty room without any human support, even then, I'll know that he is with me. And he is giving me a strong sense of his presence, God's presence. Verse 26, he knows I am weak. I groan. Creation groans. Paul said we groan when we're in this earthly tent. Yes, we do. This earthly tent that's falling down. But he, the spirit, verse 26, he groans. He knows just what to pray for. He is my advocate. How realistic the Bible is. Creation around us groaning. Believers groaning. God himself is groaning. It was never meant to be like this, but it is this way. But I tell you what, this way, it's not comparable to what is to come. 
And as he groans and he utters on our behalf, verse 27, the father knows his mind. He prays just what I need. And the father knows the mind of the spirit. And the spirit will never be lost for just the right word to pray for you. You're not alone reminding, strengthening, interceding. Oh God, will these children ever grow up? You're not alone. Oh God, will that boy ever come home? You're not alone. Oh, Heavenly Father, will this business ever turn around? You are not alone. Verse 23, we who ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Uh, We have a friend who went to pastor a large church in Sydney and he told them many years ago now, about 28 years ago, he came to the church. He made them two promises. He said, I promise never to preach a half-baked sermon and I promise to do all in my power to make sure that if you are dying, you do not die alone. I will make sure there's someone there to walk you up to the valley and the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, will come and he'll walk you through the valley of the shadow of death. Probably the most influential preacher of the 20th century was a man by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones who for years pastored the Westminster Chapel in London. He himself had been a Harley Street physician. And when he came to his deathbed, his GP came to him and said, Oh, doctor, I don't like to see you weary, worn and sad. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones gasped out, Not sad. Not sad. Weary and worn, maybe, but not sad. We ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. So Paul says, here it is. I consider, make this calculation. Whatever's going on right now is incomparable compared to what is to come. And that's for sure because it's based on the promises of God. And secondly, I want you to remember that you are never alone. And none of this minimises pain or grief, but how good to know that God is intentional and purposeful and one day will restore order to this world, which is broken by sin. And when Jesus Christ returns as he promised, we will receive the resurrection body by being raised to receive it from the dead. Or if we are still alive because he could come today or tomorrow then we'll receive it in the twinkling of an eye and we'll receive our new body, which fits us for the new creation. I hope you're looking forward to it. And please come to my funeral when it's on because I've left instructions that Romans 8 is to be preached at my funeral. So just be there. It'll be good to hear. Uh, In my library, I have a treasured book given to us many years ago by old friends It's called The Philippian Fragment. Uh, It's a letter from a first century pastor by the name of Eusebius to his friend Clement. And Eusebius has just become the pastor of the church at Philippi in the first century. He's talking about the visit to Philippi of a healer called Helen, Helen the healer of Hierapolis. And she's come to town. Uh, I'll take up his account Yesterday's with my own, yesterday, with my own eyes, I saw Helen pass by an amputee selling styluses or pencils. 
She touched his legs and cried, grow back, grow back in the glorious name of Jesus of Nazareth, grow back. Well, Clement, I so wanted to see those legs grow back, but they did not. What is a faith healer like Helen to do with an amputee that refuses to grow legs on command? So she sat down on the footpath, crossed her legs on the cold pavement, and she began selling pencils with him. Soon she was talking to him. Before long, they were laughing together. For an hour, they laughed together. And by nightfall, they were having an uproariously good time. When it was time to go, Helen staggered upward on her stiff legs, stiff from disuse, and her legs refused to move. Her legless pencil-selling friend cried in jest, grow strong, grow strong, grow strong. Helen only smiled and staggered upward on her unsteady legs. She looked down at her lowly friend and she said, I offer you healing. You will see it is only one world away. Someday you will hear, enter a new life and you will hear our saviour say to your legless stumps, grow long, grow long. And then you will know that glory which Sister Helen only dreamed for you. One world away. He smiled and he said, do you heal everyone this way? She said, it is better to heal with promises than to promise healing. It is better to heal with promises than to promise healing. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we face the future with confident hope based on your sure promises, We cry with all the saints, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Your healing is one world away. Amen.